Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both. Today, I'm talking about and talking to gutsy women. I have always been interested in the stories of individual women and the impact that their lives have had on not only themselves and their families, but, you know, on professions, on politics, on the economy, on science, you name it. And Chelsea and I wrote an entire book on this subject, actually called The Book of Gutsy Women, because from the very time she was a tiny little girl, I would tell her stories about women I admired. But there was a big difference. When she was a little girl, there were women doing things that she could herself see and experience, like her pediatrician was a woman, the mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas, where she was born, was a woman. That wasn't the case for me when I was a little girl, and my mother encouraged me to go to the library and to check out books about Amelia Earhart or Eleanor Roosevelt or Maria Tallchief, the fabulous Native American ballerina, and so many others. 
Later in the show, we'll be hearing from Tammy Duckworth, an Iraq War veteran, a mom, and now senator from the great state of Illinois. But first, I'm talking to the one and only Andra Day. I first encountered Andra Day through her music. Andra is an incredible singer with two Grammy nominations to show for it, and I got to see her talent up close when she joined me on the campaign trail in 2016. And then in January, she performed her song, Rise Up, as part of the virtual inauguration parade for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Now she's starring in her first film as the iconic Billie Holiday in the United States versus Billie Holiday, directed by Lee Daniels. Andra is following in the footsteps of two other gutsy women, Diana Ross and Audra McDonald, who have played Billie Holiday on screen and stage. I thought Andra's performance just blew the top off. To prepare for the part, Andra immersed herself in the life of a woman who was supremely talented and fearless in shining a light on America's ugly history of lynching, even as she battled her own demons. And of course, Andra does all her own singing in the film. The night before our conversation, she won a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress for her performance. I caught her at a photo shoot the next day where she was borrowing a laptop. It was a really busy day, but I could not be happier to be able to talk to this extraordinary person. Oh, Andra. (laughs) I am hugging you so much right now. I hope you can feel every ounce of it. Oh, my God. How are you feeling the day after (laughs) winning the Golden Globe? (laughs) I'm still like, I don't even know the words. I was trying to figure that out today. I was like, what do I feel? Gratitude for sure. The one thing I say, and I will always say, is God is great. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And he put such incredible people in my path. I mean, the way these people poured into me, you know, the way my team and people have supported me and people like you have supported in that in, in ways to me that don't even make sense, you know, but God's so great. So I just feel just it just makes me think of everybody who's been a part of this whole journey. And it's just like a blessing. I'm, I'm so grateful. When you were chosen by Lee Daniels to do this part, how did you first react? Because you had not been acting. I mean, you've got no. the most amazing, <laughs> you know, musical ability. And I, I personally, you know, love your singing. But thank you. This was a real challenge for you. And yeah. I know you give a lot of credit to your team, but what did you have to do inside to be able to get there? I had to do a lot. And it's funny because when I got the role, when Lee told me I got the role, my reaction wasn't necessarily like, oh, okay, I'm so great. I'm ready to do it. It was sort of like, uh, are you sure you looked at every actress? Like, what? I'm not <laughs> like, this is not a good idea. Like, he's like, wow, you're annoying. Just come to set. You know what I mean? But once I really prayed about it and like dove in, I mean, it was everything, you know, because she's such a dynamic woman, mm-hmm. but it was everything. It was studying addiction. It was sitting with heroin addicts and former addicts and learning how oh, to Oh, wow. Know. Did you do that? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And actually, I'll share a story with you because I met a few, but there was a pair in particular. It was his sponsor and he owned the sober living home. And then it was a young kid. who, So he was 25 to 30 years sober. And the young kid was only like a year into his sobriety. And this young kid is teaching me, you know, where the nylon goes above the muscle, you know, and <sighs> And just how to shoot up with not just they're used to plastic needles. Back then, she would have been using glass, which was why our track marks were so big. But and at a certain point, 
he's zoned. Like I see the sweat building on his brow. I see his pupils dilating and he's locked into that moment. And so I asked the guy, I'm like, is it really okay? Like for him to be here? Like, are we sure this is, he said, trust me, he's a big fan of your music. This is a part of his recovery. It's, you know, I, I got it. You know what I mean? But that kid, what he gave me in that moment was everything I needed to know about the need, about the mental illness behind it, the trauma, you know. So on top of that, it was working with my acting coach, Tasha Smith, and working closely with Lee and Tom Jones to get the voice right. And hopefully the singing voice, once I get it rehabilitated, will be the one you recognize. But (laughs) my vocal cords are like, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, but you, I mean, you went all in. I mean, you took up smoking, which Billie Holiday did. You lost a lot of weight. You cut your hair. Yeah, we cut, oh my Beautiful mane of hair (laughs) that you had in order to prepare. So what I loved is that you inhabited Billie Holiday without imitating her. Yeah, that's actually a blessing to hear because that's what Lee would tell me. It's got to be an interpretation, not an impersonation. And I think that's why, like you said, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't cuss. I'm not, for me, I I took a vow of abstinence almost about seven years ago. So I'm not, Mm -hmm. I don't engage in that way either. But for me, that's why I had to be just generally more sexual in my behavior, you know, just cussing a lot (laughs) Mm because she had like a PhD in putting a sentence together with cuss words. And then the smoking, the cigarettes, the drinking alcohol, I had to really feel it in my body, I think, because these weren't things that she just did socially. Like, she, I mean, the woman would wake up and have like a pint of gin the way you you might have a cup of coffee, you know? So right, right. she lived hard. She lived hard. So it was just in order to really become her, as you said, in order to, I, I had to feel some of these things. And honestly, like, yeah, it took a toll, you know, but I would do it exactly the same way again, because her legacy This is the godmother of civil rights. Her legacy deserves, I believe, that level of dedication because she fought that hard for us. You know what I mean? She did. And obviously, it's a terrible story of her struggles, and it's made all the worse by the U.S. government's campaign to destroy her, to Mm -hmm. imprison her, which is shown in the movie. Yeah. And to stop her from singing a particular song called Strange Fruit, which helped to galvanize an anti-lynching movement across yes. America because Billie Holiday understood that she could use her artistry, her talent, her voice, to try to sing about something that was so terrible. Did you know about the song before you played Billie Holiday? I did know about the song. I did because she is my biggest inspiration. That's where the day comes from in my name. So I love the relationship between her and Lester Young. And he gave her the name Lady Day. So I've been a huge fan since I was like 11 years old. And the first two songs I heard was one called Sugar and then I heard Strange Fruit. And so you can imagine hearing that at 11. You're like, what's going (laughs) on? Why do I feel different inside? You know, but what I recognized in that was like sacrifice. I just felt bad for this woman singing whatever's happening and whatever she's talking about is real loss. You know, I think what makes me so happy about this movie is most people know her, you know, as this great jazz singer, but troubled, 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 which mm-hmm. was so not the case. You know what I mean? She was fighting for lives, for our actual very lives. And so it was her singing this song in defiance of the government and, and the death of Emmett Till that reinvigorated Thurgood Marshall in the movement. I don't believe we would have civil rights the way we know it today if it were not for her singing this song. Mm. When you realize she was doing all of that pre-civil rights, you go, wow. You know what I mean? Like, 
they had to silence her because those are strong shoulders, really powerful, strong shoulders. I think that's one of the many reasons why the film is so important. I kept thinking how brave she was. You know, she could have made a deal, made it clear, okay, fine, you you sent me to prison, you know, you kind of entrapped me with drugs. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to my career. I won't sing that song. She would never promise that, would she? No, she never would. And she never did. I mean, I'm sure she had moments where she's like, because listen, there were moments when she would leave certain clubs after singing that song and the police would actually pursue her shooting into her car like with the intent to kill her. So she could have easily said, all right, fine, you know, and still made a splash and still had a great career and still and probably would have had a better career, you know, even though she was a superstar, but probably would have had a better career. Mm-hmm. But it's just for that woman to be betrayed so frequently, you know, yes, and to right. still stick to it and to still sing this song and to hold a mirror up to American culture. Cause I think that was the huge thing at the time was that I think America wanted to look at lynching as they were comfortable looking at it as this horrific act done by sort of a fringe group of, you know, racists, but it's not, it was culture. We'll be right back. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. 
I'm curious to know, when did you first discover singing? Not only something that you were good at, because a lot of us like to sing and then we learn we're not good at it, (laughs) but that it was a really unique expression for you. Mm, Yeah. Music was so much a part of my life for my entire life. My mother can sing, my father can sing, they always have music on in the house. Mm. So my earliest memories are of my dad washing the car and us singing together, or my mom would kind of be in the kitchen and she has this dance move that she does that's like burned into my memory and singing, you know, all the time. <laughs> but I believe it was like around six years old and it was singing Whitney Houston, honestly, that it was oh, like, wow. we would love just listening to her in the house. And mm-hmm. so that, that I think around six years old, really singing Whitney was the first time I realized and my family realized like, oh, wow, you could actually sing. You have a nice voice, you know. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Southeast San Diego. So yeah, my father was in the military. So and spent time in Detroit, where my father's from, uh, born in Seattle, you know. So it's like definitely a military touring, you know yeah, what I mean? And yeah. so, and then he was stationed at the base in San Diego, and that's where I grew up, spent my life. And where was the first time that you sang publicly outside of, you know, washing cars and in your kitchen? And- <laughs> so um, publicly, actually, I went to a performing arts school, and I started at the school when I was in the sixth grade. So when I was 11, mm. dance was my main thing at the time, actually. And I just did like choral ensemble and all of those, those different things. And I just have a love for just music and for creating and for, you know, the stage and for the arts, you know. I love the idea of performing arts schools because I think there's so many kids who could benefit from going to such a school if we had enough of them. But over the years, you've used your voice to, as one of your songs says, stand up for something. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I obviously loved having you with me on the 2016 campaign trail. And then I was thrilled with your performance of Rise Up, one of my all-time favorite songs, as part of the uh, Biden-Harris inauguration. Yes. How did that feel to you, being part of that historic moment, especially with um, you know Vice President Kamala Harris taking office? Yes. I mean, I, I have, and I just you know, learn this from my mother and from my grandmother and from Billie Holiday and, you know, watching women like you, like VP Kamala Harris, like Michelle Obama. I mean, when women are in positions of leadership, it is proven. The numbers are there. Economies do better. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like, it was incredible. It was historic. It was a moment after so much darkness, a moment for hope. And it's amazing to see her face in there and, you know, having met her. And I mean, one of the first things we did was pray together. And so, as I said, I have such a need and a passion to see more women in positions of leadership. Well, and one of the things we've learned during this uh, year of pandemic is that countries run by women have done better. They have. There you go. A, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a, yeah. an important lesson that I would like mm-hmm. to see imparted. How have you managed the pandemic? You, you had finished filming before that. We did. We got everything in the can. Uh, We finished filming December 9th, 2019, literally right before everything kicked off. So managing during the pandemic, I mean, it's just, you know, just, you know what it is? It's just gratitude. Because like I sat down and I was just remember thinking like, man, this changes everything. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do A, B and C? And then I stopped and I realized like people are choosing between shelter and food right now. You know what I mean? So I just had to really stop and just be like, you should be super, super grateful. That's not a choice that you have to make. You can take care of your family and you guys can sustain. So actually figure out how you can serve in this time if you really want to. Right. And so, um, yeah, we actually paired with this charity, Give Directly, who are incredible and started this I Give Directly charity, which was just getting money into the hands of people who needed it the most. And 
I like that a lot because I think it gave people dignity to make choices with their own money. So it was, it was beautiful. That's how we focused. Well, I'm glad to hear you underscore the importance of gratitude. I believe that yeah. with all my heart. In fact, I have a phrase about the discipline of gratitude and how people, yes. you know, should practice it like we practice, you know, being healthy or, you know, trying to exercise and a lot of other things. I love that. Because <laughs> sometimes you don't want to feel gratitude. <laughs> no. I mean, you, you, you almost you almost reject it. Grateful for what? You know, Grateful something went wrong. I'm, I'm too upset right. to worry about gratitude. <laughs> but, you know, you've now... You've had multiple hit songs, a starring role in a film under your belt. Uh, where, where do you see your career going? Do you want to do more acting? You know, it's so funny. All my co-stars would laugh at me right now because when I was on the movie set, I was like, yo, I'm out. <laughs> I'm tired. My vocal cords hate me. My body hates me. I was like, no. But now, like kind of being on the other side of things, I think I do. I, not a lot. I'm going to be honest. Not a lot as far as acting goes. Just maybe a few more just whatever really speaks to me and grabs me the same way Billy did. But the thing I really, really have a need to tell is, is our stories, you know? So I, I would like to, I've started writing some things and developing a few things and I'd love to co-write, co-direct and co-produce pictures because, you know, Billy Holiday's story is one in a million stories that have, the narrative has been suppressed and the narrative has been mm -hmm. changed, right? That's how sort of systemic inequality works. That's how oppression works is you have to control the narrative. So I just feel like there's so many great stories of our contribution. And I think telling the truth of those narratives is going to be integral in really dismantling this system piece by piece by piece so that we can actually, you know, have space for equality, space for everybody. I think that is the most important task facing us as a country. Yeah. But that does take a lot of bravery because you've yes. got to be willing to stand up and tell stories that are uncomfortable and, and hear yeah. those stories and learn from those stories. And I wanted to ask you about bravery. I mean, when you look back now, what do you think is the bravest thing you've ever done? What do you look at and feel like, wow, that really was hard? Wow. Well, listen, I got to tell you, this movie, <laughs> because I did not. Oh, my God. I was when I tell you I was trying to run from this movie in every single way. You know, first of all, as simply as I can put it, I did not want to suck. I did not want to be terrible. <laughs> I And I was 100 percent certain I would be. I had never. This is my first acting role, you know, on, on screen. And I didn't want to dishonor Billie Holiday's legacy because I love her so, so, so much. And the other thing is I didn't want to dishonor Diana's legacy, right? Who played her so beautifully in 1972. And it was such a feat to get that film done. You know, it was just so many layers to why I was like, but the main thing was just really, interestingly enough, something that I believe God used this role and her, her spirit, she worked out of me, not out of me, I'm still working on it, but I have just really deep-seated feelings of just unworthiness and inadequacy. I never feel like I belong. I have a fraud mentality. Like I feel like I'm a fraud every place that I go and I'm overcoming that is like difficult, is impossible. <laughs> it's why when they told me the first time you wanted to call me, I was like, no. And they're like, why not? I was like, what do I talk to her about? She's brilliant. She's so smart. I didn't even go to college like or graduate. So I'm like, why would I talk to but it's that constant feeling of just not being good enough. But, you know, it was a prayer. Actually, it was a scripture about walking on water and doing an act of great faith that made me do it. Meeting Lee, his fire, his dedication to Billie Holiday, fearless storytelling and his need to honor her legacy and to make her a hero. It was all those things that made me say yes, ultimately, <laughs> and dive in. <laughs> 
And we are so glad you did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I will tell you every day on set, he would laugh at me because every day on set, I'd be like, yeah, I think today's the day they're going to realize I'm no good and they're going to fire me. <laughs> they were like, shut up. Please yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah, that, you know what that is called? It's called the imposter syndrome. And it is a particular problem for talented, smart women. <laughs> wow. I wonder why. <laughs> We could do a whole show on that, my dear. <laughs> we'll be back. You know, I, I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you. And I and I know this of all days, the day after your big award has to be jam-packed with everybody in the world wanting to talk with you and, and do an interview with you. But it just means so much to me. If anybody deserved to have their hard work and their talent and their spirit recognized it's you, my friend. And I, I only wish you the very best. Oh my gosh. I love you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. It makes me so happy. The United States versus Billie Holiday is now streaming on Hulu. My next guest is someone whose career I have followed for a long time, Senator Tammy Duckworth. You know, I thought I knew Tammy's story, but she has a new memoir out. And in reading it, I learned she's even braver than I realized. It's called Every Day is a Gift. It's just out today. I urge you to track it down, and I'm delighted to be talking with her. Hi, how are you, Madam <laughs> Secretary? Oh my gosh, Tammy. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk with you and let's get right into it because I know you're a pretty busy woman and uh, <laughs> I want to respect that. So it seems like an understatement, Senator, to say there's a lot going on right now. How are you and your family and those two adorable little children <laughs> of yours getting along? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, um, we're muddling through just like all the other working families in Illinois and across mm -hmm. the country are working through it. My six year old, thank goodness, has gone back to uh, in-person classes because Great. I was a miserable <laughs> kindergarten <laughs> teacher. I, I'm not trained. You know, I always had respect for teachers, but boy, I am not trained to do that. Um, and my, my uh, that's Abigail and Miley Purr will be three in April. So she's uh, she is rambunctious. as all get out. <laughs> I can't believe she. She's three. I remember when she was in your lap and you were breastfeeding on the floor of the Senate taking care of a baby. Yeah. You know, I want to get to your book because I thought it was, you know, really great. Oh, thank you. Let me start, though, for listeners who may not know who you are. You're a veteran. Mm -hmm. You received a Purple Heart in 2004 for your service in Iraq. And while you were there, an attack on the Black Hawk helicopter that you were co-piloting resulted in a crash and eventually in the amputation of both your legs. In a C-SPAN interview, Senator, just a few months after the attack, I found you amazingly upbeat and optimistic. Where did you find that strength? Yeah, well, I'd had my darkest moment I've ever had probably within the first two weeks after I woke up. So I, the attack happened on November 12th. I woke up in the hospital um, 11 days later at Walter Reed. My memory ends with trying to land the aircraft. And I went through a pretty dark period where I thought, well, number one, we landed the aircraft, but I thought that I had crashed the aircraft and it was my fault and I deserved to lose my legs. I go into this, you know, spiral down into this um, depth of despair. And then I find out, no, actually we landed it, that I fought until my last breath 
to actually help land that aircraft. And once I found that out, I've been fine ever since, Hillary. I mean, Good. you know, I, I've Good. been just so grateful that I'm alive. And I feel like the book is called Every Day is a Gift because every mm-hmm. day since that day for me has been a gift. You really describe a process that is all too common mm-hmm. for uh, the men and women who serve our country, and especially over the last uh, 20 plus years who have been in and out of combat, you know, the sense of responsibility and duty really above all. But your journey starts in Thailand. And you write about what it was like to be the daughter of a Thai Chinese mother and a white American father living in Thailand. And frankly, the discrimination that you faced as a child of mixed background. What was that like? And what do you think that experience so early in your life prepared you for? Well, Hillary, you know, growing up in Southeast Asia in the, the 70s, post-Vietnam, there weren't a lot of Amerasian children. And the only Amerasian children around were the children of American GIs and largely prostitutes and sex workers. You know, and there is real stigma associated with that because most American GIs left their Thai or Vietnamese girlfriends behind with the children. Um, not many stayed and married and, and, and created a family the way my father did. And so it just brought great shame on my mom because everybody had looked at her, just assumed that she was something that she was not. I even talked in the book about how there was this whole dichotomy between being scorned as biracial, as a half-breed child. Um, But on the other hand, there's these standards of beauty that are embraced where people wanted to buy me for my mom. My mom was accosted, you know, by folks wanting to buy me. But it gave me this viewpoint of America that showed for me as an, now as a senator, the struggle that immigrants go through and the struggle, especially last year, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't compare my experience to what black Americans have gone through in the Black Lives Matter protests. But I will tell you, it, it gave me an insight into that struggle to be accepted. And my whole life, people have said, well, where are you from, really? I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm American. My, my yeah. ancestors have been here since before the, re- the revolution. And like, no, 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 mm-hmm. where are you from, really? And then you and your family moved to Hawaii, and you had a series of setbacks. You had economic setbacks. You had all kinds of difficulties kind of just keeping the family together. I would imagine that also gave you a kind of grounding in what it's like to have to really struggle. I have never worked harder. My family has never worked harder than when we were poor. There was at one point when I was 15, 16 years old and the only person in my family with a job. Hmm. And I was the one, you know, uh, trying to help us pay the rent and put food on the table. And my mom at first, when we moved to Hawaii, couldn't come with us because of immigration laws. (laughs) Even though she had American children and she was married to an American, we didn't have the money for the visas and, and, and the visas would have taken a while also. So she couldn't even come with us. And and I talked about, you know, trying to be mom at 15, you know, to my 13-year-old brother and trying to buck up my dad to keep looking for jobs at this point. He'd been unemployed for three years and still looking for a job and finally, you know, taking matters into my own hands after I blew up at my dad and went and found a job. <laughs> what happened after Hawaii? Where did you go next? So my parents moved from Hawaii to Virginia because my dad, being a veteran and a prior civil service, was able to get a job, a GS4 job, Hillary. <laughs> oh, boy. OK. That's a real entry level job. That is like, I don't know. yeah, very, very, very entry level. I think it was maybe $10,000 a year. And they left me behind because I had uh, at this point been accepted to the University of Hawaii. And then after that, I went to D.C., well, moved to Virginia to be with my folks, and I decided to go get my master's. 
and I was accepted into George Washington University. So you see that climb out of poverty and what it took to go step by step by step, you know. Just being able to finish high school for me was a miracle because Mm. I would have been more used to my family dropping out of high school and working two jobs. So they had to sacrifice to keep me in school. And so when did you decide to join the military? How, How did that come about? So you got your master's at GW and then what happened? So I finished my first year and the Berlin Wall was coming down. So all I was watching people from Czechoslovakia as the country was splitting in half, running for the border, with everything that they had, trying to get on these trains. It just, for me, brought back all those memories of me as an American with all of my privilege, watching Vietnamese boat people put everything mm. that they had and their children into a rickety boat and going on into the ocean, you know? And so it brought back all these memories. And I wanted, I knew I wanted to serve I thought I would serve in the Foreign Service. I mean, you having been Secretary of State was like my, you know, I, my dream job isn't being an ambassador, let alone, you know, something that you did. There were guys in my class who were like, Tammy, just go take ROTC and learn a little bit about the military. And I went off to hmm. basic training and fell in love with the Army. Ah, great, great. Oh, what was it about the military? Was it the structure, the sense of mission and purpose? Yeah, I, I described this in the book because it was pretty miserable. <laughs> you know, you know the, the drill sergeants are yelling at you. I mean, it's a miserable time, but it was a pure meritocracy. It was all about, are you willing to step up and help carry the load? Mm-hmm. And they didn't care that I was a little Asian girl. You know, they didn't care anything about me. They just wanted to know if I could shoot straight and I was uh-huh. willing to help carry the load. You know, when the extra ammunition got heavy, did Duckworth step up and help carry the ammunition? Literally, mm-hmm. you know, on, on yes, a, on a right. march. My first time in my life where I was judged purely on how much effort I was willing to put into it. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I, 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 you know, I talk about this uh, in a book. I describe locking myself in the latrine and crying <laughs> and then coming back out it and saying, hard. okay, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> but I love what you say about it being a meritocracy. I mean, it's one of the reasons why the military still remains such a ladder of opportunity for you know, young people, whether it's urban or rural settings who want to figure out how to get themselves upwardly mobile and find the military as a great way to do that. And so you you were in ROTC and then did you join the reserves at that point? I did. What you do is you make this list. It's a wish list you give to the army and then the army decides. So one of the instructors, I was the only female in my class at the time, said, Everyone, you got to write down combat arms jobs, even if you want to become, you know, a finance officer, except for Duckworth. She's female. She doesn't have to write any oh. down. Oh, come on. I know. Oh, wow. And uh, my instructors actually lied to me and said women couldn't serve in combat. But there were two combat jobs, air defense artillery and aviation. And so I applied for a reserve forces commission in order to get aviation to become a helicopter pilot. Did you see this as a potentially long-term career that you thought maybe this is what I want to do? Or did you still think of it as a reserve officer duty? I only ever wanted to do it part-time. I still was pursuing my dream of the Foreign Service. Like I, I still, to this day, you know, I would love to be, you know, that young junior Foreign Service officer stamping passports in, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a mission out in the boonies somewhere. I, I just, it's because I watch ambassadors. You lived it. I lived it. Well, I watch, you know what it is? My dad at one point worked for the United Nations refugee programs, and he would be bringing bags of rice with the American flag on it and delivering that to refugee camps. I got to see, watch an American ambassador cut ribbon openings on health clinics mm-hmm. and places like that. And, and I just, 
you know, the, the book is about, it's a memoir, but it's also my sort of a love story to my country, to my nation, mm-hmm. you know? And so, no, I, I still wanted to become a foreign service officer. So I finished my master's, started my PhD, and uh, was actually working for Rotary International, um, helping Rotarians do humanitarian missions around the world when um, I was deployed to Iraq. You were there during some of the worst fighting, and mm-hmm. you were, you know, in that uh, terrible attack that resulted in the crash and your injury. When you were released from the hospital, what were you thinking about in terms of the future that you and your husband wanted to build together? Well, during my recovery at the hospital, all I wanted to do was go back to my unit. Like I put every effort I had in trying to regain my flight status. You know, my whole life, my superpower had always been my willingness to work hard. I mean, I was never the smartest kid in the class. You know, I I got mostly A's and some B's, but I was never the straight A student. I was never the one who would win the scholarship. For me, working hard was my superpower. Mm -hmm. And I had to come to the realization at Walter Reed that my superpower wasn't going to rescue me and, and get me back with my unit. And that was hard. And at the time I had met Dick Durbin and Barack Obama and Dick Durbin actually was the one who gave me his number, his personal telephone number. And he said, Tammy, anybody have any problems, you call me. Mm-hmm. So I, of course, immediately abused the privilege. <laughs> <laughs> and I started calling him because we had a lot of problems that Walter Reed. And this is something you also know because you were working this issue in the Senate, yeah. too. Right. And I was like, sir, I, somebody's not getting paid, sir. The families are sleeping on the floor because there's no clean places for them to stay that isn't infested with mold. And after about 10 months of this, I mean, Dick Durbin essentially became the unofficial ombudsman for the patients at Walter Reed. So I was still a patient at the hospital undergoing surgeries when Dick Durbin said, Tammy, I think you should think about running for Congress. You know, we need a voice that understands what our troops are going through. I remember being on the floor of the Senate, as you do, waiting for votes and and just chatting, when Dick Durbin told me about you. I can remember it absolutely clearly. He said, I've met this amazing veteran, this woman who has had a really serious uh, injury, lost her legs, but she's become the advocate for all the patients at Walter Reed. I can remember saying that and him saying, and I'm trying to convince her to run for Congress. And I said, well, you know, don't you think you ought to let her heal first, Dick? I mean, come on, give her give her a little bit of time. But how did that unfold uh, in terms of Dick Durbin spotting your talent, that incredible energy and can-do spirit that you do have, Tammy, and making it his mission to persuade you to run for office? I think he just had really good timing because at that point I realized I couldn't get back to my unit. Yeah. And I was lost, right? My whole adult life, my mission was to serve my country, either Mm -hmm. in the foreign service or or in the military and hopefully Mm -hmm. both. And, And I had no mission. And this is why we see so many of our troops fall into self-medication and mental health issues and homelessness, there's this downward spiral because they lose that mission. They lose their camaraderie, their buddies. And Dick Durbin came along and gave me a new mission and challenged me. My, my joke now when he talks about seeing me in the hospital and inviting me to run for Congress is that he asked me while I was still medicated. <laughs> and that's my excuse. What did it for me was Dick Durbin saying, we have no one with that with your voice that can talk about what our troops are going through. And so we said, what the heck? And did it. Yeah. What year was this, uh, Tammy? This was at the end of 2005, but I lost. and um, I. But you put up a great fight. I did put up a great, and we won the majority that year Mm -hmm. uh, in the House, but I wasn't part of it, and I was just devastated. I I locked myself in my bathroom for three days and cried because that was the only place (laughs) that I did not get self-service. 
Yeah. So I sat in my bathtub and cried for three days. Yeah. And then I got the call um, offering me a position as the state of Illinois' director of Veterans Affairs on the governor's cabinet. So you go to work for the state and then you decide to run again. Well, I go to work for the state and we actually took Illinois from being 48th in the nation for veteran services to the top two. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the nation for veteran services with a lot of innovative programs. But then I get asked by Barack Obama, once he was elected, to serve at a federal VA. And Mm -hmm. after about two years of that, I got really frustrated. (laughs) It can happen. It can happen. I got really frustrated with just the bureaucracy and all the Mm -hmm. things. And I realized a lot of what I wanted to fix was legislative. And that's when I decided to run for Congress again and won in 2012. Oh, I remember. And once you were in Congress, it became very clear that, you know, you wanted to prove that you could be a member of Congress that would actually make life better for people. And you also were a staunch advocate for women's rights and roles, for the rights and roles of minorities, for immigrants. You really carved out a reputation in the House, Tammy. And then you decided to run for the Senate. How did you decide that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it does, I, I was pretty happy in the house. I, I had been reelected. I'd had my baby, Abigail, and I was on maternity leave when the talk started about the fact that Mark Kirk was up for reelection, the mm-hmm. Republican who had um, won uh, uh, Barack Obama's old seat, and uh, who would run. And my name was in the mix. People kept calling me. I was like, folks, I'm on maternity leave. My God, (laughs) let me have my time with my newborn. But Illinois' primary is very early. It's in March. So um, you would have to declare by March of the the previous year to really have a good run. So I'm on maternity leave. Finally, we decided that the opportunity to be in the Senate was that opportunity or the train was leaving the station. And if Mm -hmm. I wanted to not get on that train, that's fine. I could just keep running for re-election. But the idea of being in the Senate and being able to represent my entire state again was really what moved me to run. So I decided that, okay, this is the time to do it. And we just took a deep breath and jumped and it was miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to be a mom of a newborn and run for a Senate (laughs) and be a Congresswoman was horrendous. I I can't even imagine, (laughs) Tammy. I mean, I've done one at a time, but you were doing all three. But before we move on, I I just want to say a word about your journey with infertility and uh, IVF, because you write about that. I do. You know, I really appreciate your speaking out about your own experience. Thank you. I decided to put that in the book because, I mean, I put my fertility on hold. My, my gynecologist said to me, my VA gynecologist, is like when I talked to her when I was just turning 40 and saying, I think we're going to try to have kids. And she's like, well, you know, you're, you're towards the end of your time, but that's what we professional women do. We give up our fertility for our careers. But thank goodness there are ways that we can, you know, help you get pregnant. But the VA does not have fertility services, at least they didn't at the time. So she referred me to the companion hospital. And I went to that fertility clinic and a very nice female doctor didn't even see me in a clinic. She came out and she sat with me in the waiting room and said, honey, you're going to be 43 soon. Your chances of getting pregnant, even with fertility services, is less than 5%. You should just go home and enjoy your husband. And I believed her, though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was giving a speech at like professional women conferences and stuff as a congresswoman. And the question got asked about how do you have work life balance? And I said, well, I don't have work life balance. I just work because I'm going to be 43 now and I'm never going to be able to have children as much as I wanted to. And a woman there came up to me and said, 
here's my doctor. You go see him. He's knocked up every professional woman in the Chicago area <laughs> over the age of 40. The sisterhood network. Right. But this is why I put it in the book, Hillary, because she was open with me, a total stranger. And then she called me like every month for six months until I finally went. And when I went to see that doctor, the fertility doctor at Northwestern University Hospital in Chicago, he said, who told you that you couldn't get pregnant? And I said, uh. who? And he goes, oh, Catholic institution. I said, what? And he goes, they don't believe in in vitro fertilization. So I, for four years, was a candidate for in vitro, and I was told that I was not. Oh. I talk about this in a book about just how angry and betrayed I felt that a doctor, she should have said to me, well, there are these other procedures. We can't perform them here because we're a Catholic institution. Go some, you, know, you should go somewhere else. No, she didn't even tell me about them. She just told me, there are no reproductive services that can work for you at 42 years old. You're going to be 43. Just go home and enjoy your husband. By the way, my husband loved that. When I came home and told him, the doctor told me to just enjoy my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and then 18 months from the day that I saw my that Dr. Confino at Northwestern, I was pregnant. Thank goodness that that woman came up to you at that event and told you to go uh, get a second opinion. When you got into the Senate, you found that you know there were problems in the way that people were treated. There weren't changing stations in the women's uh, bathrooms. I remember that very well. And I think you also advocated for changing stations in the men's bathrooms yeah. in case that were ever to be <laughs> useful. We talked briefly about your second daughter and when you gave birth to her in 2018, being coming the first senator to give birth while in office. That was a huge landmark. And then to bring Miley, to the floor of the Senate with you. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I read that, you know, there were some senators focused on the logistics, which is always, you know, the, the, the refuge of those who want to say no, even asking about the baby's dress code. I mean, what was the baby going to be wearing on the floor of the Senate? So here you are, you have to take her with you because you're breastfeeding. Did you feel the sense of historic change that you and little Miley represented? I did not, to be honest, <laughs> because I'm pregnant and I know, you know, I'm, I'm about, you know, as I'm approaching my due date, I know there are 48 Democrats. We needed every single vote. And, and I knew that I couldn't take family leave when I gave birth because the rules of the Senate are if you take leave, you can't introduce legislation and you can't vote. I just was just trying to figure out how am I going to get to work when they won't let babies at my workplace, um, and, <laughs> <laughs> which is what every other working mom does, right? How am I, I going to go to work if they won't let mm -hmm. me have the baby at my workplace and I have to go into work, but she's 10 days old. I can't just leave her with someone. By the way, Kirsten Gillibrand went through this as well, but she could enter the Senate through the cloakroom, but mm -hmm. I can't because there's steps into it. Yes. So I had to change the rules. But you're right. Yeah. Orrin Hatch was the one who wanted to know if the baby was going to wear a hat or no hat <laughs> and whether it was going to whether the baby was going to have a blazer or like he was worried about the dress code. But I remember thinking she's a baby. Her head gets cold. They all wear beanies. I'm not taking her hat off just to go vote. Yes. But I did throw a blazer on her for the vote <laughs> in her onesie. <laughs> We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. You know, I wanted to include you in this episode about gutsy women because you exemplify it from adapting to your life first in Thailand, then in America, to your military service, your recovery from a devastating injury, your groundbreaking work as a member of first the House and then the Senate, and your experiences as a, a working mom. I wonder, what do you see as the gutsiest thing you've ever had to do? Um... I think probably facing myself after a failure. I think coming out of that bathroom <laughs> in <laughs> 2006, in <laughs> climbing out of my tub in 2006 and going, okay, I got to face the world and, and what else can I do? It's uh, facing the loss of my mission, my identity as a helicopter pilot. I think it's just like picking myself back up each time and, mm-hmm. and putting one foot in front of the other. It's going from being a child of, you know, of relative privilege growing up in Southeast Asia, um, you know, of, of an American dad to being in Hawaii in, in utter poverty and, you know, being willing to go through the garbage mm-hmm. to find, you know, uh, uh, snorkeling gear so that I could go look for money on the beach. <laughs> yeah. For me, the, the, the courage comes from getting back up. What's great about America is that we're not a country where we promise you that you'll never fail. We're a country that says, if you're on your knees, 
and you're not willing to give up, then we're not going to give up on you either. That's mm-hmm. the beauty of America. And I hope people see themselves in my book. I hope they see like the struggles that maybe their families went through when their dad lost a job at 50 like mine did. I hope they see the struggle of like me trying to do my job and be a mom and and feeling miserable at both. When I'm with my job, I, I feel like I'm being a terrible mother. And when I'm with my daughters, I feel like I'm letting the people at work down. Um, I hope they see themselves in, in, in the journey and, and know that it's okay. It's okay to struggle and just get back up. I think that is great advice. They might not be able quite to imagine doing everything you've done uh, because <laughs> you set a high bar for getting back up and keep going, but I think they will be inspired. You are an inspiration. I am delighted to have this chance to talk with you, and I just you know, wish you the very best, Senator Tammy Duckworth, and just all the best to you. Keep going. Thank you, Madam Secretary, my hero. Tammy Duckworth's book is called Every Day is a Gift. Not long after I spoke with Tammy, eight people, six of them Asian American women, were murdered in Atlanta, Georgia. Tammy has been outspoken in the wake of this terrible tragedy. So I asked her to join me again for a quick check-in to hear what's on her mind right now. You know, after the horrific shootings in Atlanta on March 16th, you were one of the very first political leaders to say that those shootings seemed racially motivated. Why was it important for you to speak out about it? Well, there are only two Asian women senators, <laughs> for one thing. And there are not that many Asian Americans in leadership positions in this country, especially in high-ranking government positions. And, uh, you know, having held a position like that yourself, being one of the, you know, <laughs> few, if not only women, we've seen all the pictures where you're the only woman at the table, right? Um, it's so important. And so we'd seen a rise in anti-Asian violence over this past year because of Donald Trump's rhetoric and those Republicans who chose to follow along with his leadership. In fact, over uh, you know 3,000 more hate crimes that were actually reported as hate crimes against Asian Americans, mm-hmm. 150% increase in our major cities just this past year. And we know that hate crimes against Asians are very much underreported, which is why when, you know, what happened in Atlanta happened, uh, I wanted to make sure that we put the marker down that this looks like a hate crime to me. And especially since that police sergeant, the first thing he did oh. was said that, you know, was defend the shooters. That he was having a bad day. I'm sorry, I get bad days all the time, but I don't go out and kill eight people. Right. Well, I found that just unbelievable in every respect. And when we look at how crimes against Asian Americans have increased, as you say, so dramatically, why do you think that the story of all these attacks, the physical attacks, the pushings, the beatings, the spitting, the coughing, you know, the vandalism on businesses, why do you think it's taken so long for the press to cover this and for, you know, this kind of terrible behavior to get uh, the attention it deserves? I think the racism against AAPIs is a little bit different. It's got that whole model minority component to it mm. in that there's a sense that Asians are doing just fine. They're the doctors and the accountants <laughs> and the scientists. Yes. And so they don't need extra help. They don't really face discrimination. And then also the hate crimes in the past year, that those statistics that I mentioned, 
two thirds of those were against Asian women. And um, Asian women are, you know, unfortunately, a stereotype is meek and submissive and also hypersexualized. And so, uh, you know, there's this whole, they got where they're coming to them because they were working in a massage, you know, they were giving massages, mm. that sort of thing. So I do think that there's sort of several things going on at once. And Asians have been this other category. Asians were actually in internment camps in the United States. We didn't right. do that to any other right. race. It also is somewhat frustrating to me, and I've spoken out about this for a year, that there's not enough attention paid to the fact that two million of our essential workers are Asian Americans, and they've been disproportionately affected by COVID. Nearly one third of the nurses who have died from COVID-19 were Filipino Americans, even though they make up just 4% of our nurses. And so part of the challenge is, you know, expanding the press's understanding of what a story is and trying to cover what are very important activities and the consequences in the community uh, writ large. Well, that's exactly it. I don't think people connected the dots. And this is where we need, you know, voices like yours and voices in the media to connect the dots and say, you can't call this a Chinese virus. In fact, most of the cases in the United States came from Italy. So it is just a way to divide us. Right. There's something Donald Trump was doing to cover himself for the fact that he wasn't handling this at all. Absolutely. And he was just shifting the blame. And Asian Americans are a frequent scapegoat throughout our nation's history for when things go right. wrong. Well, finally, Tammy, I wanted to ask, you know, as an Asian American woman, as a mom, have you and your family experienced any anti-Asian bigotry this past year? My mother has. My mom is 79 and still drives and goes shopping by herself and does all of that. But she's come home from being at the grocery store where people have said things to her, literally pushing her out of the way. Or, you know, I think she said something like, you know, somebody pushed her out of the way at the supermarket and said, I don't want to catch your Chinese virus, you know? Oh, boy. You know, that sort of thing. Um, I'm much more visible, so I don't get it as much. I mean, I experienced the racism. I mean, I've been asked, where are you from? while wearing the uniform of this country with her flag on my shoulder. <laughs> you know, point to the flag on my shoulder right here. This is where I'm from. Well, I, I just want to thank you for your leadership. Once again, you have, you know, just moved right to the forefront. And I appreciate your not only raising these issues, but demanding action. You know, everybody needs to be, you know, paying much closer attention to what's happening in the Asian American community. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? Well, just thank you for, for you know, coming back and covering this. I, I think those of us who are privileged to be able to have a soapbox to stand on, we have to sort of exercise that privilege in a way, you know, that recognizes the responsibility that comes with it. And sometimes it's speaking hard truths to people and, and, and talking about things that people are like, oh, no, you know, we're not going to pay attention to that. We've got other things to worry about. Was, no, this is important. Well, one thing I never worry about is you speaking truth to power, my friend. <laughs> and keep it up. Keep going. Thank, Thank you. you so much. To learn more about what you can do, please check out stopaapihate.org. And to the AAPI community, let me just say, you do not deserve to live in fear for your safety or your families. You are a vital part of this country and millions of people are grieving with you and standing with you.
You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin, Kathleen Russo, and Lauren Peterson, with help from Huma Abedin, Nikki Etour, Oscar Flores, Lindsay Hoffman, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Rob Russo, and Lona Valmoro. Our engineer is Zach McNeese, and the original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like You and Me Both, spread the word. Post about it on social media, send it to your friends, and make sure to hit the subscribe button so you're the first to know when a new episode drops. You can do that on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home you know that feeling when you walk into your home take a deep breath and feel new well that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut cleans like Clorox and feels like energy It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.